The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Today, expert knowledge is so highly valued that we learn to lead first as the expert whose mastery of the details helps teams solve problems. Eventually, as your leadership role expands, expert leaders find themselves in a role where others know more. Details are no longer so accessible, and decisions are made without a full understanding. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone with Dr. Wanda Wallace. It's time to find out how to make the transformation smooth and flawless. Now, here is Dr. Wanda Wallace. Welcome to the show. I'm Wanda Wallace, and we're continuing in our series today on influence. Now, over the last few shows, we've been looking at influence specifically on how do you have more of it. So we've talked about being persuasive, we talked about negotiating, and today I want to emphasize what it's really like to have influence on the ground. So with me today is Lawrence Lewis, and Lawrence is certainly one of those people who has been there and done it in terms of influence. He's had experience both in the public and in the private sector, and everything he's done is really about implementing big change, from managing services to contracts to service customer centers to offshoring solutions to large-scale programs, some acquisitions. It's a broad gambit. And in all of those, as Lawrence would say, the only way you get those big solutions done is by influence. Currently, Lawrence is at the UK Ministry of Justice on the executive team for digital and IT. So, Lawrence, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Wanda. It's uh, glad to be here. Really looking forward to this, and I'm looking forward to your stories about what it takes to make it work in practice. So let's start with the biggest topic of all, resistance. So you implement these massive change programs like offshoring, for example. There can't be any company where the individuals within the company just cheer, yay, we're going to get outsourcing. So you have to deal with resistance, and you probably can't always say, tough, do it the way I want to do it. How do you bring people around when they're resisting? How do you deal with them? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a very good question, and it's a it's something you you get right from the moment one when you walk through the door. Oftentimes, in those sorts of scenarios, you're sponsored by the most senior team, probably at sea level, and uh, when you're brought into that, everybody's nervous of you. Number one, they may not uh, be sure of how it's going to play out because there are always winners and losers in these sorts of processes. And therefore, their immediate reaction is to be protective, um, to be defensive. And somehow you need to break those barriers down and bring them along the journey. And that's, uh, that's one of the biggest challenges, particularly as a consultant, when you have no formal power or authority over anyone. So I guess the first bit I always try and do, and whether this is through experience or through mastering the subject, but is to develop as thorough an understanding of the subject matter, of the challenge that's facing the organization, as I can do. And oftentimes we call that a discovery phase, but that really is about me learning the detail, understanding at detail level both the political 
and the sort of logical arguments for and against uh, a particular change program and getting a really good understanding of, of what that means for people. And developing that understanding, I think, is absolutely critical because then when you walk through the door, when you have those conversations, you actually speak with some level of credibility. And you may be doing that on the basis of some of your previous experience, but also you're contextualizing it for the people that are about to go through what is going to be a change. And, of course, human beings in, in general struggle with change. Of course. Well, sometimes I think we struggle with change because we don't want to give up what we've had. Even if it's bad, we don't want to give it up. Um, So I love this that you try to learn the detail of what's the pros and cons of this change effort that you're going through. And you said both logically, which I'm imagining is the easy part, and politically. How do you begin to get your hands on the political dynamics? That is... uh and, and that very much is identifying within the organization who are the people who are the informal but also the formal leaders, the people who will bring that change through. And yes, there's a formal organizational structure, but there's an informal structure. There's the go-to people, the influencers you have to bring around. And you really have to understand who those people are because you need uh, folks a lot of time and energy on, on those. And I think the key to doing that is to understand the problems from their perspective, understand the challenge from their perspective. In particular, what are their emotional uh, reasons for having that perspective? Why are they emotionally tied to that view, but also why are they logically tied to that view? And they oftentimes will have sometimes very logical reasons or very emotional or insecurity reasons for behaving or deciding to take a particular perspective or, or view on this. And you really have to understand that from their perspective. And where appropriate, you need to air that for them because they may not have a voice and you may be the voice of that. So it may not necessarily prevent something from moving ahead, but it could be raised as, a, let's say, a risk or an issue that one needs to mitigate throughout the process. And having that voice and understanding from their perspective helps them to at least feel they've been heard. And oftentimes that is, that is part of the challenge. If you are a resistor or you're seen to not be coming along the journey, You'll often be sidelined, um, even though sometimes your, your concerns are valid. And giving a voice to that, I think, does sometimes help bring people around and re- reduce that, that resistance. Okay, so let me stay with that one for a minute. Um, I get that there are people who, if they could get their voice heard, would be much more supportive. Totally agree with you. But you have to get them to open up to you to tell you the truth first. How do you get them to trust you enough to tell you what they really think? Yeah, so, so the first challenge to that is, is, is trying to get close to those people around them that know them. Um, and then once you try and get a, an external view of what their main concerns are, then you actually have to try and socialize that with them. And you might bring that through with using data or communications. In fact, I think one of the most critical things you can do through any major change program is to involve, to include, to communicate with people, take them on the journey. And at some point, they begin to provide some element of trust where they'll be able to surface those concerns. It helps on that journey if you understand their political, irrational, or emotional context um, whilst you're taking them on that journey, because then it'll, it allows them the opportunity and you, having built some trust, for them to confide in, in, in you about those insecurities. On other occasions, they'll never do that, um, and you just have to infer or uh, extrapolate from their behavior what you believe their, their fears might be and, and, and try and proactively address those. Um, but that's, that's generally including evolving communicating is probably the, the first step I would take in bringing that along, along that journey. 
I was um, talking with somebody yesterday who is just taking over a group. Um, the announcement's about to go out in a few days about the takeover or the promotion, I guess I should say. And half the group is going to support the new leader and probably half the group isn't going to support the leader. And I was saying to this particular individual that one of the most important things to do is to acknowledge at the beginning that I imagine some of you have mixed feelings about the loss of a former leader or the departure of a former leader. Um, So that's the kind of thing you're talking about. Even if we don't have a chance to get it from people, we sort of speculate and acknowledge we understand it. Absolutely. And you may not know the detail of of why they may have uh, particularly uh, felt that way, but you need to infer by through your own experience why they might feel that way and take steps to try and address it. This is all about engagement. Uh, This is engaging them both emotionally and logically um, on that journey. And and sometimes you don't know all the details. You don't know all the data. You're not certain of everything you're saying. But if you get a broad feeling of what would make someone feel or resist that way, then you can start to address it exactly the way you described, by acknowledging it. Okay. All right. So now I get the sense that you have to really understand the political context, the logical context, the pros and cons of the thing that you're being asked to do, and that there's a bit of homework that you do well before you talk to people. I also understand that you want to go and find the informal leaders, the go-to people, the influencers, and really understand their perspective, both emotionally, politically, and rationally, and then acknowledge all three of those. Now my question is, but how do you identify who the informal influencers go-to people are when you're outside the organization, you haven't, you're not living in it? Yeah. And, and as I said, you know, oftentimes I spend the first sort of, the first 30 to 100 days just getting my head around and the team's head around what, what that exactly means. So, you know, in the process of doing the logical discovery of the uh, you know, the business case and reasons to do a, a major change, you're getting that opportunity to go and meet all of the players in the organization. And in doing so, you find that single names often will come up time and time again. And you'll notice that those single names don't necessarily, you know, feature high up on the organizational chart. They are clearly people who are influencing others. And therefore, the, the, the discovery journey, which is painting a picture of what the challenge is, what the problem is, and the logical possible outcomes, but in doing that, you actually are going around speaking to an awful load of people, and in doing so, you start to get a picture of who's who in the organization, both formally and informally, and therefore, you often get a, uh, painted a picture of their perspective or what they think about it well in advance often of even meeting that individual. But that helps you frame uh, the political context for which you're operating. That's great. Um, one of the things that I often do with coaching clients who have a question about the political environment in which they find themselves is I have them draw out the formal organization chart. So we get the formal lines of authority. Those exist. They just don't have an enormous amount of power, but they do exist. And then I have them go back and draw in the relational um, components, you know, who really trusts whom and who distrusts whom. And when you get that kind of a map, you can begin to see who's connected to whom, where, why, how, and often that helps you identify the influencers. 
But I think you're also making an important point here that sometimes it's not the obvious people. They can often be quite down in the organization who have the greatest influence at the end of the day. Indeed. I would call that a stakeholder map, and and you will draw that map and compare it to the organizational structure, and they'll often find that they're nowhere similar at all. Okay, fabulous. So stakeholder map versus the organizational map. Okay, now let's roll forward. You've done your homework. You understand the business case for the change that's being introduced. Um, you've identified who the informal leaders are. You got the best guess you're going to get about what those informal leaders think politically as well as emotionally and rationally. You're ready to acknowledge it. You're going to give a voice for the informal group. You've done all of this lovely homework. And you can be in the midst of a critical meeting, a critical presentation, and one of those influencers gets defensive and sort of undermines what you've just said for a host of reasons. What do you do at that moment? The easiest way of taking the wind out of someone's sails is to agree with them and then take it out of the meeting. It's a simple trick. I use it often, and it's just agree with them. I completely agree with that, that view. We've investigated that view. There's more homework to do on that. We're doing more investigation study. I think we could take that outside of the meeting and deal with it and bring it back. And it diffuses them, diffuses the argument in the meeting, and helps the meeting progress beyond that point. Um, and it, it is something I have used on occasion. I've been in exactly that situation um, where a key senior um, stakeholder um, did exactly that in the meeting. And and. Having the debate there in the meeting is not going to help. It's not going to allow the discussion to move forward. It'll prevent any other decisions from being made. So all you can do is agree um, to to take it forward, agree with the individual's concerns, um, although you may not agree with them logically. You agree that they have those concerns, put them on the parking lot, take them outside of the meeting, and we'll deal with them separately. And that allows the meeting then to continue and diffuses as much as possible to the situation. Now, I know what people are going to say. That sounds weak. Are you ever worried that you're going to look weak in that context when you say, when a big argument is proposed and you say, I agree with you? No, not at all. Because, again, depending on the objectives of the meeting, you actually may be in a situation where it's a critical meeting. You need a decision point at that meeting. You could end up um, completely derailing the entire meeting, not getting that decision, prolonging prolonging the whole process for for days and weeks, perhaps months on, simply because uh, of someone trying to effectively hijack um, the decision process. And and oftentimes that's a great tool if you're a resistor, but who is pretending to be a proponent. You wait for those critical meetings to, to raise concerns, sometimes often unfounded, but that is the perfect moment to diffuse a program. And it's only at that moment you need to be able to diffuse the situation to get the decision outcome moving forward. You may not get 100% of your decisions out through that, the door as you might want to do in the first place. But otherwise, you're going to have a debate which is going to surface a whole lot of unknowns, which then overall, the rest of the stakeholders in that room, their entire confidence level starts to drain away, and they feel there hasn't been enough work done here. Whereas actually, if you can diffuse that one argument um, that one resistor right there and then, you can obviously progress with the rest of the meeting and the decision process without derailing the entire program. Fascinating. So 
you, and it's exactly what people wouldn't expect, that you'd agree with me. Um, I thought this was the moment I was going to completely undermine you, and you're agreeing with me. You're right, it does take the thunder out. Any other advice for dealing with the emotions that people present in the midst of resistance? So there's often anger. Um, there's disengagement, as in I don't want to be part of this. I'm not touching it. I'm not going anywhere near it. And then we've just talked about that active um, undermining. Any other advice for emotions? Yes, and again, you've got to understand the person. You know, a lot of this is about individual personal behavior. People behave the way they do because of things that they want, insecurities that they have, fears that they have, and those oftentimes are irrational, um, but also maybe logical arguments that they have which are valid. And the way to bring those people along is is partly because they're not being heard. You're not hearing me, and therefore I'm opting out of this process. And actually, even if they're in the, in the small minority, um, if they want to participate but they feel they're not being heard and they're not being acknowledged for their feelings and or for their views, you have to give them a voice. So if you've got someone you deem wants to participate but feels they're not being heard and therefore sidelined, you need to give them a voice. But ultimately... Ultimately, you will find there are some people who are pure obstacles. They will never want to participate. They will always fight it, and they never want to be brought along the journey. And then sometimes, sometimes they need to be removed. And it's only on those rare occasions you have to reach back to your sponsor. Hopefully they're senior enough, and you have to influence the decision-making process there. And I have had occasions, very few occasions, where you've had to have someone removed out of the process to allow it to progress. It's painful. It takes time. Um, it requires evidence, and eventually, though, it does become a tipping point where it's recognized by the stakeholders, by the senior stakeholders, that that action has to be taken. Um, it does cause delay and pain, but sometimes it's the right decision. Okay. I watch way too many people default to labeling somebody as a resistor and then exiting them from the process of the organization or sidelining them. And all they do is compound the problem because the voice was not heard. And so your point is I'm going to embrace that poor person as much as possible for as long as conceivably possible and use their getting their voice heard to raise some real issues. Okay, we're going to take a break, Lawrence. I like this is fascinating process to think about actively reaching into resistance. I think it's more like leaning into resistance, listening to it, understanding it, giving it a voice, agreeing with the point of view that's being raised rather than fighting against it. So when we come back from the break, I want to talk about the other side of this, which is how do you really go about bringing people around to your point of view, persuading them in effect that your view is the right view. With me today is Lawrence Lewis. Lawrence has had a broad range of career in consulting and advising companies, public and private, about big change. We'll be right back. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book, 
or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Now there's a new destination for video content, VoiceAmerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us support. You. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, Call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. I'm Wanda Wallace. With me today is Lawrence Lewis. Lawrence has a ton of experience in managing big change, both in the public and in the private sector, from offshoring solutions to large-scale projects to acquisitions, and the list goes on. He's currently at the UK Ministry of Justice on the executive team for digital and IT. We've been talking about the biggest problem in influence is dealing with people who are actively resisting your point of view. And Lawrence has been saying that the way to tackle them is to fully understand their point of view, where they're coming from emotionally, politically, and rationally, and make sure that you get their voice heard. Often our tendency is to shut down, and in this particular case, it's anything but shut down. It's an embrace almost. All right, so Lawrence, let's go a bit to the flip side. How do you think about, not, it's not so much resistance, but just in general, bringing people along. I hear this from senior managers every time I coach someone. He or she needs to learn to get people on board, bring people with you, bring people around. Okay, well, what does that mean you're supposed to be doing? I think the first and foremost thing is if you want to bring people around, if you want to, to have them uh, follow a certain path, you've got to give them clarity, clarity of vision. It's got to be simple and clear what you're about. Um, that is one of the core parts of leadership. If you really want people to line up behind you and follow you in the same direction, you have to be absolutely clear in what that direction is, what your objectives are, keep them simple, keep them clear, and give people tangible things that they can do to model that behavior. And you're, what you're trying to do is create a culture, an organizational behavior that all falls in line. And you can do that in a number of ways. I mean, there's probably three ways you can, you can probably do that. You know, first is, is, is data, is, is information, logical argument um, that helps them understand why you're heading in that direction. There's your experience or your specialism because you happen to be the best in that field. People will admire you or follow you because they believe you know what you're doing. You have credibility and competence. And I suppose, finally, it's, it's part of the emotional bit. 
which is to help them see beyond what they have now. As you know, people value what they have now oftentimes more than what they might have, and, and often the best way of approaching this is help them see how what you're offering removes some of their fears, removes some of the problems that they see in, in preventing them from doing what they want to do, the challenges, and you're going to break those barriers down. In effect, show them the value to them, not just the value to you or your organization, but what will they get out of it in, in particular. And if you can do those three things and you can show them a clear direction and build objectives around those three things, I think you can bring people around um, to your way of thinking and to your view. They may not always... Um, be 100% aligned, but if you give them an opportunity to feedback and in some ways incorporate that feedback, oftentimes you end up with a better result. Feedback and incorporate it. So I get the sense that there is, it's the thing I hear all the time, a clarity of vision, really simple, straightforward, what are we trying to do, and tangibly, what do I need you to do right now? And I'm going to do that with, you know, every means that's available to me from data and logic to my credibility as well as to emotional intelligence. So understanding what people are afraid of. It's interesting that you say um, you appeal to them based on the value to them. What's the And that's exactly what we were talking last week when we were speaking about negotiations and then the feedback and incorporation. So can you give us an example of how this has worked in practice? Mm, indeed. Um, <laughs> this is, uh, I got a fantastic example for you on this. A number of years ago, I worked for quite a large uh, city law firm. And that, uh, by the very nature of the legal sector, tends to be trailing edge in the way they uh, adapt to technological change. The also thing is that they, they are normally in a partner model, which means that there could be 120 partners, 150 partners running an organization. And to bring an organization along with that many voices, with that many influencers, and with that many decision makers is, is quite a nightmare, particularly one that resists technological change. Um, and, and it's a classic example of how you need to bring those people along. So one of the key challenges was we get them all aligned with the vision, get them all aligned with the direction of travel and the objectives that they wanted to achieve. And the interesting thing about that sort of partner model, they all have very, very similar worries, concerns, or challenges, and it's generally about generating business and profits and, and so on, as well as having their own sort of power base um, that they don't want eroded. And so if you understand those sorts of things and set a vision with objectives that are clear, that uh, attract as many of those people in that audience as you can, um, you start to get on to winner. And the second thing I did in that organization was I developed my champions, who in that audience of stakeholders, that number of stakeholders, who are the real advocates, the real champions of the change, of the ideas, of the concepts, of the vision. And by filtering those people out and helping them reiterate the message, helping them incorporate the feedback and bringing everybody along the journey, it made all the difference in the world to make what was a large-scale change to that organization. Um, And indeed, in the end, some of the um, protagonists actually became promoters. So you tried to turn your, your, your... your detractors into your promoters, and and that worked an absolute treat, I must say. Um, it was probably one of the most successful projects I managed to get across the line because of the stakeholder community and how difficult and how broad that was to manage. 
Um, but yeah. It's interesting when you get a group like that on side with you, um, it does tend to turn the tide. So how much time did it take in this particular example from the day you're brought in to say we need you to manage this technological change to the day it's largely done or totally accepted? Let's get to that point. What's the average time? The the acceptance point probably took about between four and five months. So um, the the, the first bit, again, is is meeting each and every one of them and developing an understanding of where they fit in an informal structure, where they fit as part of the stakeholder map and what you're going to need to do with those particular individuals to get them along the journey. But as you meet different ones, you learn who are the promoters, who are the advocates, and you're bringing them along to help you through that change. And eventually, at the end of it, what you're handing over to the uh, all of those stakeholders in is their their vision. It becomes their vision. It's no longer what you brought to the table. It becomes theirs. They own it. They participate in it. They they are passionate about it. They believe in it. And it took about five months to embed that change, and approximately another year to actually have the entire change uh, completed. But once you had that stakeholder community on board, then the rest of the change actually went quite well. Um, if you've got the right champions, you know any major change can can be can be taken through. Okay. So, and I like this notion that you say you make it their vision. So this is about you have a general overall idea, but you can't stay wedded to your view of the world. It sounds like. Absolutely, you cannot. I mean. What you can do is, and, and indeed, oftentimes, the process of, of socializing, I'll call it a socialization, the, the process of socializing that vision um, and others contributing to it and buying into it, when they do, they own it. They start to take some ownership of it. And oftentimes, that vision then becomes stronger as a result of it and more deliverable. Um, and and that, that is the challenge. That is the, the balance um, one must, must take in that process. And if you identify the right champions in the early days, then the, deci- the, the vision itself and the direction of travel and the objectives that come out the other end are often stronger. Okay. So willingness to let other people have a piece of it, to contribute to it, to alter it, to adjust it, to twist it so that they feel ownership for it. And then finding the right champions. Now, do you have any criteria for, I mean, how do you know somebody's going to be or become a champion? Um, actually, I, I uh, two things uh, normally uh, attitude. Um, okay. There's nothing nothing more brilliant than getting someone who's got the right attitude, who's uh, liked by their colleagues around them, who is trusted by their colleagues around them, who have influence in their colleagues around them, and that often is their attitude, what they take to the to the team that makes them that way. And then the other is that they really get it. They are proponents of the idea, the concepts. They may not know the detail. They may not know how it's going to play out. But what they do know is that they like that change. They like that direction of travel. And if you can get those two things, you're probably onto a winner. And ironically, those sorts of people don't necessarily come from the top of the organization. They can come from the lowest parts of the organization, the most frontline staff or actually can be influencers that help you make that change across the organization. And uh, I remember on a particular occasion where I was making quite a large change across about four or 5,000 people. And we basically went on a recruitment drive for exactly those two things, attitude and could understand why this would be a better world to be in. 
and we we recruited some people who worked in the customer service centers, frontline staff answering the telephone. First time they'd ever been out of their their area to fly to another part of the country to to be part of a major program. Had never done that before, um, but they actually took back a, a really vibrant and excited view of the change, which infected so many people in the teams around them and helped make that change a lot easier. That's interesting. So reaching down at very much the front lines um, because they get the enthusiasm, they get the excitement about being involved in it, and they bring that to everybody else. Mm. Very interesting. Um, And not surprising, I guess, in many, many ways. Um, Clarity of vision. Let's come back to this one. Every leader I talk to is going to say that the clarity of vision, simple and clear and objectives and tangible, are all... The, absolutely the important things, but I find that most visions are uninspiring. So can, can you give me the, any advice about how to create it simple, clear, and yet inspiring? You actually have to, to create a vision that's relevant. I think the reason they're often uninspiring because they're like the welcome mat at the front of the door. Once you pass over them, you've forgotten them already. They try and incorporate things that are too complex or too detailed or obscure to the vast majority of people who work in the organization. And actually, they've got to be tangible to virtually as many people as you can in the organization. They must be simple and, and, and digestible. They must be memorable. Um, one of the tests I have of that is I'll ask frontline staff in a large organization, what's the vision for this organization? And you'd be amazed the number of responses you get, none of which reflect what actually is the vision of the organization. And that tells you it's not tangible to them, they don't quite understand it, it's overly complex, or it's not, it's not real for them. And um, these are the things that it has to be. If it doesn't live in everybody's mind, if it's not simple and clear, and they're able to reiterate it without a lot of study, um, then that, that vision's probably not going to work particularly well for that organization. I remember one organization I did work with, one of the visions that they had was profitability. Now, and interesting, absolutely critical to the senior management team and, and uh, to the, you know, the finance director and the CEO, meant very, very little to frontline staff, meant very, very little to the person answering the telephone and dealing with customer queries, what profitability meant. Um, but yet it was in part of their sort of vision uh, and mission statement. And so, so that's an example of where they've taken it from you know, the reality of what happens at the front line to what the, the board and the headquarters think it, it should be. And it's tying those two things together, I think, is make, if your frontline staff can recite it without ever hearing it more than a couple of times, then I think you're almost there. So this is about making it memorable. And I agree with you, because if we don't remember it, there's no way it's going to have any impact on me. So give me an example of a uh, vision that is simple and clear and inspiring and is relevant. Do you mean in terms of a, an actual one that I've heard in the past, which I thought w- was yeah. very good? Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, we, one I thought was excellent is we, we put our employees first and our customers second. Okay. Now, you read that and you go, what does that really mean? But actually, to employees, it means a happy, engaged workforce delivers happy customers. And it's that simple. And it's something everybody could remember and relate to. So happy, engaged workforce delivers happy customers. And they're just we put our employees first and our customers second. 
and it just encompasses the whole ability to engage your, your staff to help them do really good work because you're behind them 100%, and they will do really, really good work for your customers. And ultimately, you'll end up with a, uh, a revenue-generating and profit-making organization. And it's simple, but you know what? It encompasses so much when you, when you tear it down and look at the complex, underlying complexity of such a simple statement. Okay. All right. So I get that employees would like that, but I also get if you don't mean it as senior management, you're going to end up with a cynical staff in a very quick order. So you'd have to believe that you genuinely felt if I put employees first, then customers will be fine. Absolutely. And I, I, would, I would make the case that um, a vision and a strategy and your objectives have got to be reflective of the culture of the organization. If you're not that sort of organization, then it will, it will come across false. Um, you really do need your vision to incorporate the culture of the organization. Or you need to try and bring the culture along to uh, become part of the vision. But that is a much bigger change process um, than, than you know, developing something that actually resonates with your organization. You could create a, a vision that is contrary to what your organization or culture believes, and it just will knock it off the ground. So I do believe it does have to be reflective of your culture um, as much as it can be. Okay. All right. So we're going to take a break, um, but I'm getting the sense here that your way of persuading the organization, bringing people around, getting people on board, starts with a very clear vision, sometimes in which I let people articulate, refine, add to, so that they feel it's their own. But I want it to be simple, relevant, highly memorable, very tangible. So it's got to live in individuals' minds throughout the organization, just not the top. Second is I need a group of champions, and I need to spend the time finding who might be champions and that are liked and trusted and have influence and really care about this. That may not be at the top. That may be very low in the totem pole, so to say but who can enthuse others and who have credibility in doing so. And then number three is I need to allow feedback and incorporate that feedback both in the processes, maybe perhaps even in the vision, so that there's a sense of people own what we're about to do versus they have been told about what to do. Is that a reasonable summary? Yeah, I think it's an excellent summary. Okay, fabulous. With me today is Lawrence Lewis. Lawrence has tons of experience taking large organizations through massive change from customer service centers to IT operations, and it goes on forever, both in the public and the private sector. When we come back, I want to talk about how do you deal with scale. It's one thing to say all of this is great and good when I can actually get my hands around 100 people, but how do we do it at a massive scale? We'll be right back. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. What sets apart voiceamerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main voiceamerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. 
Now there's a new destination for video content, voiceamerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, Call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. I'm Wanda Wallace. With me today is Lawrence Lewis. Lawrence has had exposure in both the private and public sector implementing massive change, often in the IT area, from managed services to customer service centers to offshoring to acquisitions to massive programs. He's currently the UK Ministry of Justice on the executive team for digital and IT. We have been talking about how to influence people in the midst of massive change, both first how to deal with resistance and then second, this famous phrase of what does it take to bring people along? Now, I want to talk in this last segment about large numbers of people. So you take on these massive projects that are going to involve thousands of people. Your reputation is on the line for doing it and doing it well. And the lovely notion that you can get around and speak to everyone, like your law firm that we described with your 150 partners, there's just no way you're going to get to talk to 1,000, 2,000, 20,000, for that matter, people. How do you manage at that scale when you can't be on top of everything? It's a, it's a fantastic question and a brilliant challenge and, and one that is very, very difficult to, to resolve. But uh, the first thing you do need, um, and I'll start at the top, is absolute clarity of vision and direction again. You, you need to be very clear on what the objectives of that large program are about um, and what you're going to deliver and what, what, what does success look like? When are we going to be done this? What are we shooting for? And the second thing I would do is ensure I've got the best people around me that money can buy. In fact, in a, in a, a fairly recent program, quite a large program, about $100 million in size, uh, involving thousands of people, um, one of the first things I did, it was, a, it, was a, it was a project in trouble. I was brought in probably two-thirds of the way into the program to recover it. And the first thing I noticed of the hundreds and hundreds of people working on the project, how many were absolutely making the difference? How many of them believed in what they were doing and why they were doing it? And the very first task I had at hand was trimming back the entire senior um, people in that uh, program. So literally about 120 people walked out the door within 48 hours and paired it back to the actual number of people who would make the difference the ones who were passionate about what they were doing, who had a desire to succeed, who believed in what they were doing, and, and they could see what the positive outcome looks like. 
once you've got those people driving it around you, you've now got some of the, the, the weight lifted off your shoulders because you know those people will be uh, the ones who will help you drive the teams below you, and you encourage them to do exactly the same thing all the way through. So step one, be absolutely clear on what you're trying to deliver, be clear on the objectives, and absolutely be clear on what success looks like. When, when is done, done? When are you done this? What's that look like? And then, secondly, get the best team you can around you and encourage them to get the best teams they can around them. All right, so now I get that you get the best team around you that money can buy. I love that phrase. Um, And that one of the ways you know what's the right group of people is about the attitude that they're passionate and they believe in it and they see the possibilities and they're really dedicated and they're willing to make a difference. How do you know if technically they've got what you need or do you not worry about it? You'll discover that um, very quickly. Don't be afraid to cut deep and hire back. Um, I've always held the philosophy that um, you will get the right talent, but don't be afraid to admit you've made a mistake and move it along quickly. In large programs, under tight deadlines, under a lot of scrutiny, you don't have time to mess around with underperforming teams. In those sorts of scenarios where you're being driven to a deadline, you have to call it early because what you can do is waste an awful lot of time trying to recover a team, and what you think you're investing up front is going to cost you at the back end. You'll often spend a month at the front end trying to recover team, trying to make it work, trying to make it function better, but it'll cost you three months at the back end on your deadline. And quite frankly, my view is cut it early, call it early, call the mistake, but rectify it and put it back in place and make it work quickly. And where, where I haven't done that, my lesson learned was I should have cut it earlier. My gut instinct said to do so. I waited too long. Don't hesitate. If you've got a problem, get rid of it. Start again rebuild. And you might think, oh, well, I'll lose all of this knowledge, all this program. No, actually, what you gain is the three months at the back end you would have lost otherwise. You just can't, you just don't know it yet. So why do you say that you lose three months at the back end? I don't quite get that one. I get that we invest too long on the front end of people and they never get really on board. So why do you lose? Yeah. Yeah, because when you when you go through an underperforming team, it's often underperformed for a number of reasons. Not necessarily the technic- technical ability of the individuals, but just the way the team is working together. And if the whole purpose of a team is collectively they deliver more than they can individually. If you don't have that scenario, then you've got an underperforming team. You've got one that is better off as individuals than they are collectively, and that just can't work. The, the time it's going to take you to rectify the problems within that team and then get the team to a point where they're now able to grow to an effective team. You could be talking weeks and months before that happens, and they may never get to the point where you need them to be a high-performing team. And therefore, you just continue to lose productivity. It's not working at 100%. It's working at less than 100%. And in the end, they just drag out the program and continue to slightly underperform what you might want to have as a high-performing team of highly selected capable individuals. You're better off calling it the first bit, spending your time recruiting back the sort of individuals you absolutely know you can build from scratch, and it'll take them the same amount of time to get to high performance as the underperforming team in terms of recovery and then growing them back up again. It just takes too long, takes too much in investment, and in a tight program, in large scale, you just don't have the time. You just okay. got to cut and make your decision, get on with it. 
Well, and I do understand that if you don't cut individuals that are underperforming, it, it sinks everybody's attitude, so you end up with a bigger mess. I get where you're going from, though, now, because your notion is that to really deliver these massive change programs, I need a team performing in ways that the team as a collective is greater than the sum of the parts. So it's just not a series of individuals. It's the individuals actually playing off of each other and being stronger. And you're right that to build that kind of team environment, not everybody is cut out for it in the first place. And in the second place, it doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. So if you've got the wrong people, you're going to have to rebuild with the right people. Might as well start with the right people. Take your best shot. Absolutely. You exactly summarized perfectly. Exactly where my my experience tells me. And where I failed to do that, I've regretted it. Okay. So any other advice for managing people when you kind of can't put your fingers on everything? You said clarity of vision, and then you said get the right people. Absolutely. Get the right people. But also um, create a simple measurement mechanism. Create a simple you know, cross-checking mechanism, a quality framework. Create ways of, of double-checking your homework, and that could be completely independent of you and your organization, but you need that independent perspective. Oftentimes that's why one brings in consultants. Because they want someone who is independent, who has no particular skin in the game, and who has no particular axe to grind in terms of the program. You want that independent review. You want that independent advice. And so, so that could come through a simple measurement uh, dashboard, a way of knowing whether you think the program's on target or not, a way of challenging that when you believe or you don't believe the data you're being told, but ultimately having a mechanism to quality check or cross-check people's homework. I think um, the other thing I would uh, be wary of is to be careful when you're punishing honesty or failure. Um, the thing about large programs and, and large teams working is there are bits of it are going to fail. There are bits of it not going to deliver on time. There are bits of it are going to let you down. Um, but what you want is honesty. If you punish honesty uh, too much or in the wrong way, um, you'll end up people smiling at you and giving the wrong information. And you actually have to be really careful when you're considering what to do with someone who's giving you a bad message. Because, hey, messengers, whatever happens to messengers? Um, and, and that is true. Um, oftentimes, it's very, very, uh, very, very, one wants to attack the message, wants to vent on the messenger, and, and sometimes project managers, for example, get fired for delivering a bad message, which ironically probably had nothing to do with what they were doing per se. And so you've got to be very, very careful and selective about when you, you punish honesty, and equally when you punish failure. Um, I, I have a very similar view, which is a view of a number of, of program techniques, which is fail fast, and then learn, and then do it better the next time. So don't mind failure, but let's fail fast. Let's recover from it. Let's learn the lessons. Let's not make that same mistake again. Let's build that into our dashboard. Let's build that into our quality checks so that we make sure we don't do that again. And then keep running at it. Makes a ton of sense. Um, I, I know how much I hear from individuals that I'm coaching and doing training with. Their, scare, their fear of telling the message that a senior leader absolutely needs to hear about what's not working. I actually even have some clients where people are afraid to honestly evaluate a training program they've been in. I mean, of all the things to be worried about, that one seems pitiful. 
I want to come back to the simple measurement. I couldn't agree more that if we can get some measures to know that we're on progress, it's the easy or on track, it's the easiest way to reassure you that people are doing the right things or going the right direction. It's easy said and hard to do. So you have any examples of a kind of real simple measurement system that was effective? Absolutely. The, 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 the way I measure the success of it is the receivers of the, of the outcomes. So who, who are the stakeholders? Who are the recipients of whatever you're delivering? Do they believe it's on target? Do they believe it's on course? Do they believe it's delivering what they, what they need and want? If you get your stakeholders um, to be reviewing and giving you feedback on it, there's nothing more tangible than them saying, this is not working for me. This isn't delivering what I want. It's not on time. It's over budget. You get those stakeholders feeding back to you very early on in the stage. Get them involved in the program itself and what it's delivering and participating in it. Engage them very early on and develop a simple set of measures that they are happy with feeding back to you on. So an external feedback mechanism tells many more truths than internal ticking boxes or creating colorful dashboards get the external recipient community to give you feedback would be, and, and sometimes that's tough because you don't necessarily want to hear it, but they'll tell you the truth and they'll give you, you know, even fair feedback because they have a lot of skin in the game in terms of being the receivers of whether the outcome is of what you're trying to deliver. And therefore, getting their direct feedback is a really critical and simple way of, of measuring your success. Okay, and then ostensibly you've got some data you can take back to the team and say we're not on track here or here's where where the view is or so forth, and that gives you greater action within the team. Lawrence, fascinating for today. Um, I think there are a couple things that I can take away from this whole discussion, and one is the central notion of really understanding where people are coming from, what's the value to them as individuals, and you do that in terms of dealing with resistors. You do that in terms of letting people have input and coming around to what we're trying to achieve. The second thing that I think just stands out absolutely crystal clear once again is the importance of a simple clear, objective, straightforward um, set of visions. What does it look like when we finished this thing and how do we measure that we're on track? So, Lawrence, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Wanda. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. It's a pleasure. All right, and next week we're going to shift gears and talk with Arthur Woods about purpose. How do you identify your own? How do you lead with purpose? How do you lead an organization where people feel they have purpose? So join us next week. Thank you again for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Take charge this week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.